Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to A Hungry Society. I'm Korsha Wilson, and this is the show where we talk about food, food media, and so much more. Today's guest is Vaughn Diaz, a writer, author, and radio producer based in New York City, exploring Puerto Rican food, culture, and identity through memoir and multimedia. Her work has been featured on NPR, American Public Media, Story Corps, WNYC, PRI's The World, BuzzFeed, The Splendid Table, The Southern Foodways Alliance Gravy Podcast, and Quarterly Color Lines and Feet in Two Worlds. In her cookbook, Coconuts and Collards, she tells the story of her journey from Puerto Rico to Atlanta, Georgia, and New York City. Vaughn holds a dual MA in Journalism and Latin American and Caribbean Studies from NYU, and a BA in Women's Studies from Agnes Scott College. Vaughn. Hi. Welcome to A Hungry Society. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm so happy that you're here. Me too. So, I love this book, Coconuts and Collards, and... Not just because I love Puerto Rican food and Southern food, even though I love them both a lot, but because this book is, it's like cookbook and memoir and it's, it gets so personal and like tells these beautiful stories of, um, of how you connect to who you are through the food that you cook and how you combine all of these different things. How did this come about? Um, at first, thank you so much. I'm so glad you like it. It it really, um, I've been honestly overwhelmed um, by the positive reactions that I've gotten from folks in my community and from my friends and family. Um, So I'm I'm glad that it resonated with you. So the project that launched what became Coconuts and Collards started about four years ago when I sort of Julie and Julia style decided that I wanted to cook my way through my grandmother's 1962 copy of Cocina Criolla, which many consider the Puerto Rican joy of cooking. At the time, my grandmother was still alive and was... um, struggling with Alzheimer's and dementia as a result. And she had been this just quintessential hostess cook um, my entire life. And her ability to cook was one of the first things she lost when she, when she got sick, as we say in my family. Um, And so I started this project as sort of a reconnect with her um, to reconnect with my roots. Now that I had lost this, this tether um, to the island, who was my grandmother in um, in so many ways, and um, uh, and so it was very simple. I started writing a little bit. I made a couple of what I now have decided are terrible YouTube videos, um, but the, I mean they're fun and they're real, and I made them. Um, but um, and and I did a, a couple of radio pieces, and um, a started to really enjoy the work that I was doing and to really feel like I found a voice in writing about food, which I had struggled with in the past. Um, 
what I found, which ultimately I think really launched this book project, was that fairly quickly I realized that I could not continue to cook from Cocina Criolla, at least in the way that it was written. Um, it is like a lot of really old cookbooks. It, it's terribly out of date. Mm-hmm. And it represents a lot of what is really... Um, Uh, often unhealthy and antiquated about Puerto Rican cooking. The recipes take a very long time. They use a tremendous amount of oil. They rely on um, cooking techniques like deep frying and putting um, lard and pork fat in just about everything. And while I love food that is cooked in all those ways I just described, (laughs) that's not a way that I cook every day in my home. Um, I actually, I I barely fry anything I have a really difficult time um, with even the smell of deep fried oil in my house. And that's just a personal preference. So I started to sort of pick out the recipes that I felt like could become part of my personal cooking repertoire. And those sort of inspired other things that were more like what I was already cooking that I could make Puerto Rican in certain ways or sort of add the flavors of my island to. And so that birthed coconuts and collards. Mm -hmm. And it's awesome. Thank um, you. One of my favorite parts is where you're talking about how you had this, you know, this obvious connection to Puerto Rican food, and going to Puerto Rico, you you still felt like an outsider. Um, and I want to read this part where you're sitting with your grandmother on the beach, and you're eating um, like basically salt cod fritters and, and coconuts. Yep. And you say, I wanted so badly for her to think I was okay. And maybe part of me thought that if I stuffed myself with Puerto Rican food, with her food, I could somehow unlock the secrets of that place, that identity, its history, and this nagging sense that I belong there, even though it didn't seem to want me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, you know, I think that that same feeling aspects of that feeling still linger in me today. Um, and, and coconuts and collards, unbeknownst to me at the time that I started the project, became an opportunity for me to close the gap of that adolescent feeling. Um, and I guess what I, what I mean by that is that, you know, I was like so many immigrant kids. I was living with my feet in two worlds. Mm-hmm. I was, I, you know, I grew up in the suburbs outside of Atlanta, Georgia, way less than glamorous. I mean, you know, strip malls and shopping malls and public schools and red school buses and yellow school buses. <laughs> um, and, um, and sort of a very, what I would describe as, um, I don't know. It was boring. There just weren't a lot of kind of cultural outlets where I grew up. The coolest thing to do on the weekend was to go to a movie or go bowling. And I'm certainly not knocking either of those things. I like I like both of them still. But there weren't sort of music or arts institutions. And then I would go to Puerto Rico and I would be sort of immediately confronted with all of this culture, all of this vibrant culture. Uh, My mom always says that Puerto Rico is incredibly loud, which she doesn't (laughs) like. I love it. Mm -hmm. It is a very loud, it's an island, it's an island. Mm -hmm. Island folks are loud. They talk loud. They listen to their music loud. They leave their windows open all the time. Everybody's in each other's business all the time. And, you know, I, um, I found that it was difficult 
for me to acclimate to what felt like everyday culture to my family members um, when I would go there and I would spend the entire time I was in Puerto Rico kind of trying to find my footing and very literally trying to find my language. Because right. so often I would go back to Puerto Rico after a really long time not having been there. And in that time, my Spanish had gotten rusty, you know. So the first couple of weeks, I was really, I felt like I had peanut butter in my mouth. I just couldn't get the words out. Um, and so over, you know, over time, as I grew up, became an adult, was just in general less self-conscious than I was at the time that the excerpt that you just read, um, uh, at that time when I was just, you know, prepubescent, hating everything about life. Um, and, you know, and so I started to find ways to integrate Puerto Rican culture into, into my life here in the United States or on the mainland, and also sort of start to do this borrowing in this exchange. And um, once I started working on the book, it became sort of very, a very real tangible process of combining these worlds. Mm -hmm. So that's very similar to, I feel like, what a lot of people do when they're from somewhere else is mm -hmm. they, they take what what they know and they adapt it to fit where they are now and yeah. you this book talks about how you've blended puerto rican and southern food which i feel like people would think are on total different like sides of the spectrum like how can you combine those two things but you've managed to do it uh with these recipes so can you talk about that process and like did you at, at one point feel like they were totally disparate? Like I cannot combine these two things? Definitely. I mean, I certainly, they were not presented as similar to me at any point in, in my childhood. Um, you know, I think that seeing the, the existing connection between Puerto Rican and Southern food for me is, um, was, is something I'm really grateful to have noticed. And I think is um, a, a testament and an encouragement for people to speak from within their communities because I think in a lot of ways I was uniquely positioned to see those connections, N not just because of where I had lived in you know in both of these places, but also in just what I had chosen to study um, and in understanding that the legacy of slavery to the Caribbean and to the U.S. had created a profound culinary legacy all over both of those pieces of land and of course Central and South America and other parts of the world. And I um, I noticed, I remember the, the moment when I was like, huh, there's a connection here. Um, I used to work as a hostess um, at a restaurant in Atlanta called The Watershed that's, that's fairly well known. Um, it was the original menu came um, as a collaboration between um, Chef Scott Peacock and the incredible, inimitable Edna Lewis. And um, and so I learned a lot about food and cooking from the chefs there. And one day they made a pork roast and it was a pernil. Mm -hmm. And I was looking, I was like, that's a pernil. And they were like, that's a pork roast. And they were <laughs> stuffing it with bay leaves and garlic. And I was like, that is exactly what we do, but we use oregano and garlic, you know? And so it, it started these wheels turning in my head. And so whenever I would see these naturally occurring similarities, I would sort of note them. Um, same thing happened with, um, there's a recipe in, in coconuts and collards for um, coconut funche or coconut grits. So funche is a word that's used in Puerto Rico and I believe in other parts of the Caribbean um, for, um, for corn grits. Mm -hmm. And this is a recipe that I know from an incredible Puerto Rican food scholar named um, Cruz Ortiz Cuadra. There is evidence that funche was eaten in Puerto Rico by enslaved people and by enslaved indigenous folks 
500 years ago, and it continued to be a part of sort of, of the culinary landscape of the island. It's, it's since sort of gone out of practice. People don't eat it as much. It is grits. It's exactly mm-hmm. grits. And, um, and so I, it's interesting because in some ways I feel like the recipes in the book blend the South and Puerto Rico, and in other ways, particularly in the second chapter, which is all about, particularly about growing up in the South, um, what I found were naturally occurring similarities where recipes were just exactly the same in both places. Um, there's another recipe in Coconuts and Collards for Kingombo Guisado, um, which is stewed okra. It is just like Southern stewed okra, tomato, onion, okra, butter, salt, pepper. Super simple. And they were the same in, in both books. So, you know, it, it's sort of, um, it. For me, it's been really fun to see those naturally occurring similarities. Yeah, there are so many similarities. Um, when you when you were talking about the grits in in the Virgin Islands, there's a side dish called fufu, mm-hmm. and it's basically the same thing. It's just grits, and you it's a starchy side yep. that you can use to like sop up sauce or or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Um, was it tough to to tell these stories in this book? Was it tough to like revisit all of these? Um, like these instances of, you know, learning about your heritage and, and eating this food? It was tough. Um, I mean, I think I, the journalist in me um, sort of took a very uh, journalistic approach to the writing of Coconuts and Collards, I, partly because I couldn't help myself. It was just my training and my my instincts. But um, but I had this little kind of this little bird on my shoulder, a professor that I had in, in graduate school who was always saying that um, that the best memoir is the most honest, and and that what really um, helps people connect to to a personal story is when it's almost brutally honest. And so I pushed myself a lot anywhere that I felt like I was just sort of. I don't know, glazing over something, I would take a minute to go that much deeper into the feeling, the experience, um, the pain, um, the sadness, the the sense of isolation, the joy, um, and to really start to peel back the layers on those feelings and get really specific about the details. Um, And that, that was also, I think, a way that I felt I could really connect to the broadest possible audience um, who might who might um, pick up my book and um, and start to read it um, it was very difficult um, I in particular um, my mom who is incredible who I'm super close to um, one of my muses in life um, and is throughout you know she is the consistent thread throughout the book um, I reveal a lot about her in this book um, I reveal a lot about her at really sensitive moments in her life that are really painful and so she and I had to revisit our life together through the process of writing the book and we had to revisit these very difficult moments um, I, it was very important to me that she be the first person to look at the entire manuscript mm-hmm. and that she approve it before I even send it back to the publisher um, and that she feel really good about it you know I sort of said to myself if she has any hesitation you cut those parts but she didn't she she revealed through me as much as, as I revealed about myself. So um, it was really cathartic and really, um, I think, has been a really transformative experience. Yeah, there's um, there's a specific part um, in here that I'm going to read also that you, you're not afraid to touch on, like, how painful 
food can be. I feel like in, in food media, we try sometimes to put things into a nice little package, mm-hmm. put a bow on it, yeah. and it's a Norman Rockwell painting. We're all <laughs> sitting around eating pot roast. And food <laughs> isn't like that. You know, like it can be painful and messy, and, and it's also joyful and beautiful and all those things. Yeah, I agree. Um, but this part in the book, kind of towards the middle where you're talking about how you would cook for your sister a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when your mom and dad had split up. So I'm going to read this part. Cooking became a way for me to fix things. Food for us had become a ritual, a way of achieving normalcy. In my imagination, happy families ate meals together. Mothers delighted in nourishing their children, making them smile with secret recipes they would pass on to their own kids. My role in preparing meals was equal to my sister's role in enjoying them. We engaged in an unknowing exchange, filling in the blanks left by my mother's absence while simultaneously holding a place at the table for her. Like, that is something that could be so, that is painful, um, but I feel like you use food in a way to, like, kind of bring you and your sister closer, but also to, like, like you said, kind of fill a void. Um, did your, was your sister happy with, with the manuscript as well? Yeah, my sister, who I'm also very close to, we're a really tight-knit little clan of, <laughs> of, of like, lady bears. Um, and um, my sister is amazing. And for all of the reasons that I talk about in there, we, were, we had to be super close. She's a little under eight years younger than me, and I had, I had a lot of caretaking to do with her. Um, but um, I, I, I think what was really interesting about talking about that particular period of time and talking about my sister's role is that I realized that a lot of times um, when people are experiencing a painful moment or um, like in my case where your childhood is complicated, you you live with economic insecurity, um, potentially in a place that, you know, isn't particularly safe where you don't have resources. Um, a lot, it's really easy to just focus on, on the pain and the fear and the anxiety of those, of those moments of those childhoods. And, um, and, and when I stopped to think about it and when I would close my eyes, I would see Christina's face light up when I made something that she really liked. And then I started to just sort of like swim around in the memories of her smile as a little kid and how, how she was, um, in many ways, the my my cooking origin because it was cooking for her and making her happy that became kind of an addiction for me and made me start to get really creative. So, um, yeah, it was. Um, it's. I mean, it still makes me smile now to think about her. There's a, a. You talk about how you made a meal. You made pasta, but you put food coloring in the pasta, uh-huh. so it was like blue yeah and there was green alfredo sauce or something yeah so actually one of the first things that i ever cooked from from scratch was um was alfredo sauce and um my mom had two cookbooks she had cocina criolla and she had the betty crocker cookbook that she would get those um i'm making this motion right now where i'm like opening (laughs) a three ring binder it was the kind they would send you recipes and you'd put them in your little three ring binder book Mm -hmm. um and the you know most basic alfredo sauce which of course is a bechamel is is you know butter, flour, um, milk, and cheese. 
and and um, in this case Parmesan cheese. And I happened to have all those things in the house, and we had been eating Lord knows what, probably, you know, just steady chicken nuggets for a couple of weeks because we, you know, sometimes that's just what we had. And um, and I remember looking at the recipe, being like, oh, I can make that surely, you know. Um, and I pulled everything out and I made it, and um, and I tasted it, and and I knew that it was delicious, but it was just ugly, you know, just <laughs> white sauce on white pasta. Um, and I'm I, I'm fairly confident that I had seen the movie Hook sometime <laughs> right around there, which for those of y'all that don't remember it, is an incredible movie with Robin Williams um, where he is Peter Pan. And there's this beautiful scene in the middle where the Lost Boys have this food fight and all the food is different colors. Yeah, it's like and Technicolor. It's amazing. Food, yeah. Yes, it's my favorite food scene of any movie. And, um, and so I was like, oh. This is what I'll do. I'll make the pasta like this, and I'll make the thing like this, and um, and that was the real moment of like joy and glee in my sister's face. Like, what is this thing you just made for me? Um, and um, and it was super fun, but also just you know one of those ways that you you make things good when you don't have a whole lot. Absolutely, improvising. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more with Fondias. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugar cane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. All right. So we're back with more Angry Society with Vaughn Diaz. Hi. Author, uh, writer, radio producer extraordinaire of Coconuts and Collards. <laughs> if you had to pick one recipe from this book that is like your favorite, could you do it? Easy. Um, it happens to be the namesake for the cookbook, actually. Um, the coconut braised collards recipe 
is, um, I think, and will always be one of my favorites, partly because it's so simple. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a handful of ingredients, Uh, collards, um, coconut oil or butter, if you don't want to, if you are vegetarian, not vegan, Um, coconut milk, a soy sauce, scallion. And it um, is, I think, a surprising take on collard greens. Um, But when you make it, something really beautiful happens when the coconut milk and the collards and the soy sauce come together that actually tastes rich and creamy as if it wasn't vegan. Um, And I I think it also really balances the, the bitterness that can bother people about collards, which I don't feel. I love greens. I love all the greens, however they're prepared. Um, but that recipe has consistently been one that um, I love to make, that people ask me to make, and that my friends make and tell me that they're making. Um, I have a couple of friends since the book came out who have decided to cook their way through the book and have been <laughs> sending me photos, which anyway is delightful. Um, but yeah, that, that's an easy favorite for me. Nice. Uh, so we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about dining. Okay. Um, so you, you talk about dining at home a lot in the book, but did you guys ever go out to eat? You know, my family, like a lot of working class families um, living in the suburbs, we had very limited options when it came to restaurants. And we also had very limited resources for purchasing food out. Um, and so dining out for me growing up, um, and I would say this is almost true till today, was for um, special occasions. And we had a handful of places that we would go to. Red Lobster mm-hmm. was a birthday spot. Um, Olive Garden was the good grades spot. And oh, what was the other place that we used to eat at? Um, a, eventually, once my parents split up, my dad would take us to Shoney's <laughs> on Wednesdays because kids ate free. Yeah. Um, and so almost exclusively my sort of restaurant memories as a kid were in those kinds of places and around special occasions. Yeah, Shoney's is, when you said that, I just flash back to like... You can see it. Being a, a kid and looking over that like steam table mm. of... Really, there's no sort of like one singular cuisine they were going for. They nope. were just like, you know, whatever. Here's some corn. Here's some mashed <laughs> potatoes. And cheese. Get yourself some soft serve ice cream. Yeah, here's yes. a baked potato for some reason. <laughs> um, yeah, Shoney's is a throwback. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so th- those were most of my experiences. Nice. Yeah. Um, do you do you have any specific memories of like an instance of going out to eat in those days of uh, an experience that you remember? Hmm. I I do remember this is this is a funny memory but it, it stood out to me as an adult um, going to Red Lobster probably for my dad's birthday and um, you know even when we would go to these nice restaurants because you know back then Red Lobster and Olive Garden were a big deal like yeah. they're very special places and it was you got dressed up to go wore a dress and pantyhose and shiny shoes and um, you still weren't allowed to get what you wanted to eat. You know, I had like a limited range. <laughs> right. It was like every anything less than this amount of money you're allowed to have. Um, but it was a special occasion, and we sort of loosened um, the the the, um, the the purse strings on that one. But I remember I got something. I some shrimp scampi or something, and there was kale on the plate. Remember back in the '80s how they used to use kale to decorate plates? Mm-hmm. Now we eat it. And at the time, <laughs> I remember looking at it and being like, "Well, that looks." 
tasty. I like vegetables. And, um, and, and I remember asking my mom, I was like, mom, is this a thing you can eat? Mom was like, no, you don't eat that. And I nibbled, I nibbled on it. I was like, I'm pretty sure you can eat this. I think it's fine. And ended up eating half of this raw piece of kale. Um, and for whatever reason that memory stands out to me, because it was partly me just not having familiarity with vegetables in the world, like not having seen them. And also, um, yeah, I don't know, just a little bit of an attitude from my parents, not really knowing what vegetables were. Mm-hmm. Don't eat the kale. Yeah. No, that's for decoration. <laughs> Food decoration. Wow. Yeah. How, that's how things have changed. In <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, now kale is in everything. It's right. in your cookies and your donuts, yep. also in your soups. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite restaurant right now? Ooh, right now. Um, in New York? Um, anywhere. Anywhere in the world. There is a great restaurant in Providence, Rhode Island, which I encountered on a work trip, and it's called North. And it is um, in what I believe is sort of the Little Italy part of Providence. And the chef is, uh, I'm forgetting his name at the moment. Last name is Mark. I'm almost, I'm almost certain. Um, a child of Chinese immigrants, grew up in New Jersey. And um, that restaurant is this really, it's a little tiny place, probably have 21 seats. And it's a combination of you know, re- super authentic, from a particular region, Chinese cuisine, and then regional Rhode Island ingredients. Oh, wow. Um, And then, like, a little bit of randomness. So they have these um, country ham biscuits as an appetizer on the menu. They also make um, what some people call tinto, which is red wine and Coke. Um, which is served like on crushed ice in a little metal glass. And um, and then these incredible dandan noodles with all of this ground pork, super spicy. But I've gone there to eat a few times and um, and I would go back to Providence to eat there. There's something about, like, he just got it right. And he, and he puts a lot of, that restaurant puts a lot of heart into their food. Um, and it's also like a perfect example of how folks from immigrant backgrounds just you know, approach food really creatively a lot of times um, in a way that doesn't necessarily, I don't know, might break with what you think they would create. You mean as in he's uh, combining? Yeah. And it's, it's, um, you know, I think there was a, there was a time where we were talking a lot about fusion in food and in the, in the restaurant world. And I feel like somewhere along the way, like that was really exciting. And then people moved into this space of wanting everything to be authentic Mm -hmm. and something encouraging that I'm seeing. And I feel like this restaurant is a, um, uh, North is sort of an example of this is that, you know, authenticity is fusion sometimes, um, combining the ingredients that are of where you live with the processes and the, you know, and the techniques that are of your homeland is, I don't know what could be more authentic than that. Right. And, um, and I think that, um, uh, he's just one example of someone who I think is doing that really well without sort of blasting out that that's what he's doing. The restaurant is just called North. Um, the inside doesn't look at all like a Chinese restaurant. It doesn't look like an anything restaurant. It's just nice. It's nice looking in there. The sign is neon. Um, the bar is great. And, you know, you sort of feel like it feels like a neighborhood spot that's really beautifully elevated and just exquisite every time I eat there. Do you have a favorite place in New York? I, there is, it's funny because I feel like when I go out to eat now, I, um, largely because I'm a cook and my partner is 
a very good cook. Um, and so we, it, sometimes it takes a lot for me to want to go out to eat because I'm like, all right, the cost to benefit ratio here. Right. Like if, it's always a gamble. Yeah. And also, <laughs> you know, it's also like, I know what a perfectly cooked steak tastes like because I can do that in my home. And, you know, sometimes I, it gives me pause to, to go to places that make things that I feel like I prepare really well. So I tend to eat a lot of Asian food in New York. I, I love Vietnamese food and Indonesian food and Chinese food. And I live in Flatbush, Brooklyn, which is um, about a mile and a half south of Prospect Park and fairly close to um, Sunset Park Chinatown, which I think is one of the less traversed Chinatowns that are in the city. And there is a little place there. I actually can't even tell you the name. It's right <laughs> on the main strip and they make the most beautiful steamed whole fish I've ever had just stuffed with ginger mm. and scallion and some kind of little beautiful sauce on the side. Um, let me see if I can think of a place that has a name. Where do I like to eat? You know, honestly, that is the the main, um, one of the main places that I go back to um, when I think about what I like to eat in New York. And it's funny, you know, I think this is probably clear from kind of all my hesitance. I just have never been much of a restaurant restaurant person. Mm. It's, it's partly, I think, my cultural upbringing. Even when my family got to the point where we could probably have afforded to eat out, it just wasn't a part of our culture. My mom was a good cook. I was a good cook. My grandmother was a great cook. And, um, and so I'm just starting to kind of um, in a lot of ways, get into being more of a restaurant goer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we talked about the best. Can mm-hmm. you name one of the worst dining experiences you've ever had? And you don't have yeah. to name the restaurant, but you can if you want to. Yes, I, I, with no problem because it just happened the other day. So um, <laughs> among the cuisines that I really enjoy eating um, is diner food. And I think that that comes, it's just comes from having grown up in the South. Um, a lot of times, and I think this still happens when I was a teenager, kids hang out at the Waffle House. Yes. Like, that's a hangout. Yes. And you know, it was a place where that was smoky. So your mom wouldn't get, wouldn't smell smoke on you. It was just from the restaurant. Um, <laughs> you know, you could stay there all night long and no one would mess with you. And so I have a real fondness for just like legit diner food um and uh, i was just driving back from um from alabama actually my mom retired this past week and on the way back um, we drove all the way up and somewhere outside of chattanooga we got hungry um we as my partner and i and um and there was a denny's and we had just started talking about denny's and i was like i don't remember the last time i went to a denny's we go to denny's it's fine it's diner food i love diner food and i got a, a veggie omelet and I swear to God, the piece of spinach that was in my veggie omelet was like the size of a thumbnail. It was like this little <laughs> tiny, I don't even know where they found such a tiny piece of spinach. And the rest of the plate was just, it, it was just all poorly prepared. Um, and the vegetable part of it was just, mm, no, no, it was just <laughs> not good. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I, I was so, I was irritated about it because like, I love diner food. I will eat some junk. But um, it to me, I think what 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 kind of steamed me about it was that I was like, you know, it's really hard to eat vegetables on a low 
like on a low budget. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't want to spend a lot of food and you're traveling, you're on the road, you've got kids, any of the number of scenarios that might take you to a, gen- a Denny's, um, it's really hard to eat healthy there because you know that what's going to be solid is the burger and fries. Right. Do you want to take a risk and get the veggie omelet? Um, and it just sort of harkened back to me how often growing up I would encounter restaurant food that was vegetarian or had vegetables in it that just was not good. Mm-hmm. It was badly prepared and it didn't make you want to eat vegetables anymore. Yeah. So that's the only reason why I call it out because I could, it was like I, I, I was, I was irritated at Denny's. I mean, it, Denny's can't really hold a candle to Waffle House. No, anyway, it really can't. To be completely honest. Well, I tried it, and I, I probably will not return. <laughs> do you have a go-to Waffle House order? Because I do. I do. What's what's yours? Um, I get the what they call the the cheese and eggs because that's how much cheese is in the eggs. Um, and so <laughs> traditionally, cheese and eggs is a, just a ton of American cheese with scrambled eggs. And they serve it with raisin toast, which they also serve with apple butter. Mm-hmm. And that's the traditional way that it's always prepared. Um, and I've always just found it the most, the strangest, most delightful flavor combination. And something that to me screams like German heritage or, you know, there, there's something about it that's not, that comes from another place. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Puerto Ricans love sweet savory. And at least my mom in particular liked it. And we'll put raisins into our food a lot, into picadillos, into pasteles, into other kinds of like stewed meat dishes. Um, and traditionally raisins and prunes, which is pretty, it's actually pretty Spanish. So there's something about that like processed cheesy egg and the raisin toast with the apple butter that feels at once like came, came from an immigrant culture, reminds me of my family, and it's just good. And it's just so American. Yeah, and it <laughs> tastes the same every time. Yeah, that's the thing is yeah. no matter where your Waffle House is, it all tastes the same. It's all cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go any time of the day. I'm a um, hash browns, mm-hmm. scattered, smothered, covered, mm-hmm. um, a sausage, egg, and cheese sandwich. Amazing. And half of a waffle. Not the whole thing, just half. Yes, that sounds delicious. With butter and syrup. Do you ever pepper your your hash browns? No. Put jalapenos in them? No. I did that this last time, and it was spe- <laughs> very special. When you go to Puerto Rico, is there a specific place that you have to go to every time? That is changing for me because um, over the years, when we would go to Puerto Rico to see my family, we never ate at a single restaurant. I mean, the, and people would go on vacation to Puerto Rico and be like, where should I eat? You know, I mean, when you were a food person, people were always asking you where to eat. Right. And I was like, I don't even know. I mean, my grandma's house <laughs> You could stop at my grandmother's Exacto. house. Exacto. <laughs> um, but there is a part of, there's an area in, in Puerto Rico um, called um, e Piñones. And it's a little strip of um, outdoor food kiosks and restaurants. That's about like, I would say a f- 10 to 15 minute drive with no traffic outside of Old San Juan. Okay. And it's right off the interstate. Um, and there, um, this is um, a, an area that I talk about in Coconuts and Collards in that chapter that you read at the top. Um you can get every nature of like beautiful, deep fried, little Puerto Rican street food. Um, you can also get things like you were describing, bacalaitos, which are salt cod fritters, alcapurrias, which are these gorgeous little deep fried kind of um, tamales or hand pies that are mostly plantain and root vegetable on the outside and then some kind of um, protein on the inside, sometimes lobster, sometimes fish, sometimes ground beef and, um, and spices. And, um, and you can get all of this in like pina coladas, 
cold beers, coconuts, um, and then also churrasco, which is deliciously tender, you know, sort of grilled meats. Um, and it uh, it's right off the water. It's sort oh, of, wow. you as you're driving, you go down this windy path, and then you're sort of in this enclosed area with tons of trees, all these little food stalls, and it still remains, for whatever reason, I don't know how they did it, it remains a really local place. Like, people who... Puerto Ricans go there to grab food, to grab a drink at the end of the day and sit and look at the water. And it, for whatever reason, and may this interview not do it to them, um, <laughs> people, um, like, it, do, it tourists don't really go out that far. And, um, and it is an incredibly memorable place, and I always go when I'm there. That is a, a great thing about, I've been to Puerto Rico a few times, mm-hmm. and you can, literally, you're, you're driving, and you could pull over, and there's a stand um, and they're, like pretty much every beach has like a, a group of food stands. Definitely, and it's just awesome fried food and beers. And also, I mean, among my favorite things are pinchos, which are I have a recipe um, in coconuts and collars for pinchos with guava barbecue sauce. And pinchos are just a, a skewered grilled meat, um, and those you can get like literally anywhere along the road in Puerto Rico. And it's such a nice. I wish we had that in the United States, you know, just a place that you could go get meat on a stick and keep going on your day. Cause sometimes that's all you need is a little savory protein. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my last question for you, and I ask every guest this, um, if you could have your last meal in a restaurant, where would it be? Who's invited? And what are you eating? Hmm. So two years ago, I had the incredible privilege of going on assignment to Oaxaca to um, report a piece that ultimately was produced by NPR's Latino USA. And um, a, while I was there, I ate everything that I, it, any moment that I felt even the slightest bit of hunger, I just would shove food into my mouth because I was fascinated and amazed by the incredibly fresh, incredibly vegetarian options in that particular region of Mexico. Um, There was a little restaurant up in the hills in this textile, in this area that's really known for textiles. Um, And it was the only restaurant open late on a Sunday night. And it was a little restaurant that was just outside of a family's home. And so when you walked from the restaurant to the bathroom, you were walking through their family compound. Oh, wow. And, you know, there are chickens and kids and clothes hanging up um, and um, and textiles hanging everywhere, some for sale, some just things are cleaning. And I had two things there that were my favorite of the entire trip. One of them is called sopa de guía, which is a very vegetarian soup that's made from um, squash blossom vines and squash blossoms mm. and other vegetables. So it's like beautiful, vibrant, clear, brothy soup. And what's called frijoles de olla, which are like the beans that you have on your stove all day long, super low temperature for whenever you need a quick snack. Um, and I, I think about that place all the time. And so my last meal would be those things and also the incredible handmade tortillas and quesadillas that they made to go with them. Um, and literally every loved one and family mm-hmm. member that I could gather to come and, and be there with me and eat this very simple food and drink cold beers and, and sit outside and, and, and look at the stars in this beautiful place. Would you have uh, food from anywhere else or would you just want uh, the food from there? I think I just want their food. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was such a, and you know, it, sometimes it's all about context. It was a long day and we were tired and it was just perfect and mm-hmm. simple 
And, you know, it was like I had never had a bean that had been cooked so perfectly. You know, it was, it was had a little bit of, a little bit of bite, you know, but just, it was just perfect and simple. That sounds like a great way to go. Yeah. That sounds like an awesome, awesome meal. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for thank coming for on the me. show. Um, I, uh, we could keep talking about this book for and we a, should. a long time. I, yeah. <laughs> Once we get off here. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll continue this conversation. But thank you so much for being on the show, Vaughn. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Korsha. And thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Hungry Society. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.